start tonight my remarks with just reading a, a lengthy portion of Scripture from the 27th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew that talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. And so I'll invite you to take a moment and grab a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 27 with me. Matthew is the very first book of the New Testament, so if you can kind of get two-thirds of the way into your Bible, I think you'll find the Gospel of Matthew. And we come to his account of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, it's interesting that the two big holidays, if you will, in the life of the church are Christmas and Easter, right? But two of the Gospels don't even tell us about the birth of Jesus. Mark doesn't tell us about it at all. Neither does the Gospel of John. But all four Gospels tell us in a great deal of detail about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And that's because it is literally the, the pivotal moment in God's redemptive work, his effort to save you and I so that we can have a relationship with him forever. So let me pick up. I want to start with the first verse of Matthew chapter 27. Let me just kind of remind you of kind of where we're already at, at in this journey. Now, Jesus has already had the upper room experience with his disciples. They've gotten together. They've, they've uh, experienced or observed the Passover like the rest of the Jews. They've left the upper room. They've gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he has, he's prayed for three hours, coming back on several different occasions to find the disciples asleep and, and not partnering, partnering with him in, in prayer. About midnight, Judas showed up with the religious authorities and betrayed Jesus with a kiss and he was taken into custody and he's been taken already to the home of the high priest where he was tried, if you will. It was in an illegal court overnight and they had found all that they needed to condemn him, to find him guilty. And in those moments while that trial was going on, Peter had already denied Jesus three times. So we're already deep into that final day of Jesus, which would have started on Thursday night and completed at sunset on Friday night. And we pick up with verse 1 of chapter 27. Hopefully you've already found it. It says, When daybreak came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And after tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Slipping down to verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. And Jesus answered, you say so. While he's being accused by the chief priests and elders, he, he didn't answer. Then Pilate said to him, don't, don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? But he didn't answer him even on one charge. So that the governor was quite amazed. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, who is it that you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was because of envy that they, referring to the, chief leaders, the religious leaders, had handed him over. And while he was sitting at the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to execute 
Jesus. The governor asked them, which, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, well, what should I do then with Jesus, who was called Christ? And they all answered, crucify him, crucify him. Then he said, what, why? What, what has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And after, Jesus, and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. And they stripped him and they dressed him in a scarlet robe and they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him, took the staff and kept hitting him in on the head. And after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, robe, put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they found a Cyrenian named Simon. They forced him to carry the cross. When they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. And after crucifying him, wow, how simple they state such a painful process. How, after crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. And above his head, they put the charge against him in writing, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by were yelling insults at him and shaking their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and gave a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earthquake and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection and entered the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion, a Roman, 
and those who were with him, who were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and they said, this man truly was God's son. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and looked after him were there watching from a distance. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and, Mary, and, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea came named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate, and he asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So, G- so Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary and the other Mary were seated there facing the tomb. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You know, many of the details that we've looked at tonight in the story of Jesus' crucifixion, they, they would literally just be lost tidbits of history if it hadn't been for what happens on Easter Sunday morning. You know, Jesus died on a cross. He was for sure not the only one. He wasn't the first and the last. And many of the details of all those other crucifixions have been lost to us in history. But the reason that these stand out to us is because the cross wasn't Jesus' end. It was just his transition. And I think it's a really powerful thing for us tonight to try to slow back and, 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 and make sure that we understand what was really taking place on the cross from a more global level. We can get into all the details about time, what time it was and who said this and what did it and how they divided stuff, but let's try to back up just a little bit and see what is it about Jesus' death on the cross that justifies us to call it Good Friday. And I literally want to use the, Jesus, the words of Jesus from the cross to help us understand what was taking place on the cross. You know, we, we've just finished a series called Finals, and we've looked through the seven statements that Jesus made while hanging on the cross. The first of those was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Then we read in Luke chapter 23 when Jesus looked at the thief who was hanging on a cross next to him and we had a change of heart from mocking him to, to, to petitioning him. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And then out of an act of compassion for his mom and for John and for the new spiritual family that was created, we see Jesus saying from the cross, woman, behold your son, referring to the apostle John and saying to the apostle John, behold your mother, watching out for that care. Then we read those horrific words that Jesus cried out from here in Matthew chapter 27, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And then that's the statement so reflective of Jesus' humanity, I thirst. He makes the statement, I thirst. And then he, he cries out with conviction, it's finished. And then that final moment where he says, Father, into your hands, I commit or entrust my spirit. I want to use just a few of those statements tonight for you and I to understand what it is that took place on the cross that day. Why it came to this point. Why it was a part of God's plan all the way along. 
And the first statement I want to use is the very first one that Jesus made from the cross. You know, as he's hanging on the cross, Luke tells us that he's, he, he says his first, as he looks around and, and, and people are walking by and they're mocking him and taunting him and, and, and he's being scorned and the religious leaders are hurling their insults and their taunts at him and even the thieves around them are, are throwing their words at them and, and Jesus, the, the very prayer that's on his heart is, my fa- Father, forgive them. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You see, when we look at the cross, what we see is God's desire to have a relationship with us. And with that, it reveals God's love for us, that he truly wanted to forgive us so that we could have a relationship with him that lasts forever. See, the cross and these words that are expressed to us through Jesus' word, Father, forgive them, reveals the the heart of God that he loves us and he wants to forgive us so that he could have a relationship with us. And, and, and this, was, this had been God's plan all the way along. You know, we've, we've looked before and, and perhaps you're familiar with. If not, I'd really encourage you to read through the book of Ephesians. A little, little heavy sledding, but, but Paul launches right out and he tells us it was before the foundation of the world, before God spoke the first piece of creation into existence, that he chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in love before him. And he tells us in 1 John that in this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son for us to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, which is exactly what he's doing on the cross, right? Again, Paul puts it this way. He says, says, even while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love for us. That while we were still God's enemies, we weren't choosing to walk with him, we were choosing to walk our own way, Christ died for us. And this first statement reveals to us that God really has a heart to forgive us because he loves us. But it also points out the fact that sin is really a problem. It's universal. It's universal, incurable, and terminal for us. And so it reveals to this statement of Jesus reveals the fact that we need to be forgiven. We all need to be forgiven. You know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. And, you know, and, and that means that we're separated from God and et cetera. So th- this first statement of Jesus shows that, that God wants to forgive us. And it also shows that we have a universal need to be forgiven. You know, sometimes I think we, we bristle at the idea that we're really sinners. You know, most of us haven't done, committed any kinds of sins that are really noteworthy, right? We, we haven't violently hurt anybody. We haven't committed a crime against humanity. We haven't done any of these big things. They're, they're mostly smaller little things, right? You know, and the kind of things that, that everybody does, right? But what I want you to draw your attention to tonight is that Jesus speaks about the sins that we don't even know we commit. Father, forgive them, for they don't know. They're ignorant about what they're early ever doing. And I want to tell you, it doesn't have to be a big sin to be terminal. Even the little ones kill us in terms of our relationship with God. You know, um, 
I heard a, 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 ran an account one time about a tree. It may be an interesting story. But this tree lived for 400 years. That's a long time, right? That's way longer than our nation has even been around. It lived for 400 years. And they could tell by examining the tree after it died that it had been struck by lightning 14 different times, and it survived. But you know what killed that tree that could survive 14 lightning strikes? Beetles. Beetles. It was the little insect that brought down this tree that could survive lightning. You know, and, and, and it, it's just a, a picture to me of the fact that even though we may not be the most notorious of sinners, it doesn't mean that the sins that we commit aren't going to kill us in the long run. And as Jesus hung on the cross that night, he expresses God's heart for us, that he desires to forgive us. And he does so because he loves us and because all of us need to be forgiven. The problem of sin is universal, incurable, and it's terminal. But that really leads me into my next statement from Jesus on the cross. You know, we read in Matthew 27 here just a moment ago that as Jesus hung on the cross, he experienced something he had never, ever experienced before, being separated from the Father. The scripture tells us that the reason why that happened is that he literally became sin. And because God is holy, right, he can't have sin in his presence. So God had to withdraw his presence from his son. And for the first time in eternity, and for the only time in eternity, the father and the son were separated. But also in that moment, we know that Jesus was satisfying God's wrath, his anger against sin. The scriptural term we use is not one you would use around the dinner table. It's the word propitiation. He, he is satisfying God's anger. And so all of God's wrath is being poured out on him. And when we look at all of that together, we look at the cross and we see that God has a heart to forgive us. We see our need to be forgiven, but we see how much it costs for us to really be forgiven. It took the life of the only son of God. It took his blood. It took him becoming that which he never wanted to become, sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Just a couple of scriptures, I think, that bring all of this out. You know, the, the cost was this separation that come. And, and the reason for it is Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, said he took him who knew no sin and he made him sin. Literally, as you see the picture of the darkness falling over the land that we read about, is a picture that sin is in, encapsulating. It is, it is encompassing Jesus. He's literally, he's literally engulfing it all of himself and he's becoming sin. And, and, and God has to turn himself away from him and he pours out his wrath on us, on him, and he becomes the propitiation for our sins, as it tells us in 1 John 2, 2. And not only for ours, but for all those of the whole world. Jesus took care of sin forever. As far back as you can go, as forever, far forward you can go, he paid that price in that moment as he hung on the cross. And and he was satisfying God's anger. You know, just a little bit of an illustration maybe for this, this idea of propitiation. You know, um, imagine you're a parent and you're in a parking lot. And you've got a 10, 11-year-old child. And they decide that they're going to help, help you out. And they're going to put your grocery cart back away in the place where they store them. 
And while they're taking him over there, they're doing the typical things. They're trying to ride it and that kind of thing and go fast and gets away from him and runs into somebody's car. It's a brand new shiny car. And that person is hacked, right? And justifiably so. They're mad. They put a big scratch and a, and a dent in their car. Their pride and joy, you know, thing that cost them a fortune. And you propitiate their anger by saying, I'll pay to fix it. We'll make it as good as new, right? And, and, that's, and you try to alleviate, you try to, to, to satisfy their anger and to make it right. That's exactly what Jesus is doing as he's hanging on the cross. He is paying the price for our sin, and it's a deadly price. It's a deadly price. So we see in the cross God's heart, his desire to forgive us, and our need to be forgiven. We see what it costs God to give us that forgiveness. It took the death of his very own son and for him to pour out his wrath against all human sin on his son for that moment in time. But he did it all with his purpose. And we see in the statement that Jesus makes to the thief who had a change of heart, the one who repented and turned to Jesus. He says, you know, you will be with me in paradise. Now we want to focus all the time on the word paradise. I want to focus on this phrase, with me, with me. The impact of the cross as God exercises his heart to forgive us and deals with our sin that's universal and terminal and from our perspective, incurable. It's nothing we can do to resolve it. And he is taking care of it through Christ becoming sin for us. And he's done all of that so that you and I can be with him, that we can be in a relationship with him. See, God desires to have a relationship with us. And that's what sparked all of this and led to all of it. And we see that, that it, it, the, the apostles spilling this out to us as they write, you know. He says that, see what great love, John tells us in his first letter. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that he's poured out on us, that you and I should get to be called the children of God. And that we really are, he tells us. You know, and I want to use a picture here. You know, the, the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son is probably one of the most familiar stories in, in all of Christendom. You know, the son who goes to his dad and says, you know what, you're standing in my way. I can't live my life the way I want to live it with you standing here. Could just give me what I get from your estate and, and I want to move on with it. And when he lives life his own way and he finds himself in a place that he can't get back from, Scripture says he comes to his senses and he goes home. And he knows that he's not worthy to be his son anymore. He says, you know, I, I'm going to go to my dad and say, you know what, I don't, I, I don't deserve to be your son anymore. I just want to live like one of your hired servants. And what we see is we, in that story, that as the son comes over the horizon, the father is looking for him, and he runs to his son, and he hugs him, and he kisses him, and he puts a robe on him, and sandals on his feet, and a ring on his finger, and he welcomes him back into the family, and he restores him as a son. And you and I have that kind of God. We have a God who runs to restore relationship with us. And we see it in the statement of Jesus on the cross when he says, you will be with me in paradise. God desires to have that relationship with us. And all of that has been done. There's nothing else that you and I need that happen. Jesus, as he hung on the cross, he, 
He, he said, I thirst. And he, and he took a small drink of water, small drink of wine and water mixed with wine so it would purify the water. And he takes a sip of it and he, and he gets his vocal cords back and the strength of his voice. And he says, it's finished. Done. Everything that needed to be done for you and I to be forgiven, to have the, the universal terminal condition of our sinfulness dealt with. All of that has been dealt with. It is finished. And we are in a position to have a relationship with God as his child for eternity. Everything's been done. Nothing's left to be done. All we have to do is be like the prodigal son is come to our senses and come home to God. Just come to our senses and come home to God. The reason why Good Friday is good, even though Jesus died a horrific death on, on an instrument of torture that mankind has not really ever seen again. It was, uh, the reason why it's good is because it's made it possible for you and I to come home. That when we come to our senses, we can come home. So I invite you tonight to come home. To come home. Recognize that you need to be forgiven. Accept that God has already forgiven you in Jesus Christ. All of that has been paid for. Every sin that you were going to commit, you've committed, and every sin you're going to commit, it's all been paid for. And then accept God's invitation by placing your faith in Christ to come home. Have a change of heart like the thief on the cross. Turn towards Jesus and come home and place your faith in him. And then Good Friday will truly be good for you. Let me lead us in a prayer and then we'll have our final song together and then hang around for just a quick benediction after we sing our final song. God, thank you for the gift of the cross. You know, I know the disciples on that Friday, I know the all the women who were standing around the cross, that, that cross didn't look like a gift. That experience, experience was anything but good. It was painful, agonizing, and horrible. But Father, you meant it for good, and you want it to be good for us. God, thank you for the gift of your heart, that you long to forgive us, that you have forgiven us in Jesus and that we can come home and be with you because he's finished all that needs to be done. And Father, today we turn like the thief on the cross and like the women who sat outside the tomb. We, we look at Jesus. We focus on him and we move towards him in faith as we say, I believe and I commit. For I prayed in Jesus' name, amen.